1993, I received a package from L.A. In it was a cassette tape labeled, as though Peter Quill's mother had survived for another decade, Lollapalooza Mix 1. It wasn't a live bootleg of a Lollapalooza concert, but it was a compilation of songs by four of the hottest alternative grunge rock bands in rotating order. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Jane's Addiction, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. I listened to side A, and when it was over, I flipped the tape and listened to side B. And when it was over, I flipped it again and listened to side A. I devoured that tape. I listened to every song over and over and over. I don't think I listened to anything else until a year later when Lollapalooza Mix 2 arrived, bearing the hits of Green Day, The Smashing Pumpkins, The Breeders, and Stone Temple Pilots. These mixtapes were not my introductions to 75% of these bands, but there was a difference between watching a video on late-night MTV and sitting in my bedroom for hours letting the snarling guitars, the barking drums, and the howling lyrics of men not much older than me wash over me like a sonic tide, each wave not just cleansing me, but actually picking me up and moving me by inches every time until I was carried away in the ocean. I liked what I heard from Nirvana and the Chili Peppers, and several years later I would be haunted by the music of Jane's Addiction during one of my wilder drug trips in high school. But when I played Lollapalooza Mix 1, it was Pearl Jam that towered over the rest as my favorites. The songs, pulled from the band's debut album 10 and the soundtrack to singles, struck me to my soul. The singer's lyrics, his deep, husky voice rattled around in my head, filling me with images of childhood pain and despair and longing, and I couldn't even understand what the hell he was saying half the time. The dual guitars filled me with so much energy, I could feel sparks shooting out of my fingertips, and the percussive onslaught of bass and drums chipped away at my neck until my head couldn't stop banging forward and back, forward and back. Pearl Jam was the first band that I actually wanted to learn more about than just what I heard on the tapes and CDs. I read about them in Dad's copies of Rolling Stone. I bought a comic that actually told the band's history. I memorized their names. Vocalist Eddie Vedder, rhythm guitarist Stone Gossard, lead guitarist Mike McCready, bassist Jeff Amin, and the rotating drummers Dave Cruzen, Jack Irons, and Dave Aberziz. They were the first band that I actually hunted for B-side discs and unofficially released material, bootleg concerts on CD and VHS, promotional videos, MTV Unplugged outtakes. I bought the music books of their first two albums, Ten and Versus, not to play the songs, but because the lyrics were included and I could finally understand what the fuck Eddie Vedder was singing about. And Jesus, it was a lot darker than Don't You Forget About Me. For nearly two glorious years, Pearl Jam was about the only thing I cared about. Though they haven't been my favorite band since 1995, they were a gigantic part of my formative adolescence, and their first three albums shaped not only the kind of music I wanted to hear, but the authorial voice I wanted to present, the kind of declarative honesty and poetry I would use in my creative efforts. And that is why Pearl Jam is the subject of this episode of Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. I am Ryan Daly, and joining me once again, after far too long a hiatus, the man who compiled and sent me those Lollapalooza mixtapes all those years ago, 
please welcome my brother Neil Daly back to the show. What's up, Neil? <laughs> How's it going, brother? Good to good to be back, man. Um, well, first of all, great intro, amazing intro, and the only thing I have to say after all of that is exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's my story. How and when did you discover Pearl Jam? Okay, boy, man, this was this was such a good time for music. I mean, I mean, we've talked about it before. We did a podcast about 1993 and it, our love affair with this era of music. But you know, and I've mentioned this before, so I'm not going to go too deep into and retread the same stories. But this was a period I had just moved to Los Angeles in '92. You know, I lived in Westwood at a, for a period of time with my roommate Chris, and he and I were both like band audiophile fights and going to see live music all the time. And in Westwood, there was this Penny Lane, uh, which was my first introduction to like an import B-sides bootleg record store where you could get live stuff, uh, unreleased stuff. I mean, I think I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I, there was a, at one point I bought a five-disc Pearl Jam box set. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it had stuff that, like the unreleased demos that became the songs from their first album when it was just Green River with like Stone and, and Jeff Ahmet and stuff. I mean, it was just some really cool stuff and Eddie Vedder's home demos and things like that that became, I mean, Better Man was on that list. Mm. And this was like, that was record, that was like from 1980 something. It was, you know, we were just in this period where, I, I mean, I can't, I was just wrapped up in music. It was just everything. I mean, and, and Lollapalooza, obviously, which, which you, you mentioned earlier. I mean, my first introduction to Pearl Jam then officially was Lollapalooza 92 uh, when I went with uh, my boys, the unit, um, Corey Jones, Josh Swed. And we went to Alpine Valley and saw Lollapalooza 2. I actually saw Lollapalooza 1 as well. With, we just had, I think, Jane's Addiction and Nine Inch Nails and a couple others, but I wasn't really as into it then. But Pearl Jam... Uh, and the Chili Peppers and uh, Ice Cube and, and, and I mean for for Lollapalooza '92, the second one was just overwhelmingly awesome. I was really into the music, and and that was the first time. Like I mean, all my friends just wanted to go party. That's all we did. You know, I remember. And, and this was like when acid was the drug of choice. So like, I remember we lost Jones in a mosh pit one time and then all like, literally we were afraid for his life. And the next thing you know, he pops up crowd surfing and it was just like one of the, and he's the biggest dude in the, in the, in the venue. So it's like, how the hell are people carrying that guy? But long story short, I, again, like you, I kind of, I discovered these bands. I was out here in LA, K-Rock was dominating the airwaves, alternative rock radio, and they were playing all kinds of stuff. And the cool thing about K-Rock as a radio station, and I may have mentioned this before, they didn't follow a, a format of like record label choices for singles and stuff. They, for some reason, I don't know how they got away with it, but they had access to everything. Mm-hmm. They played unreleased stuff. They played B-sides and deep album cuts and everything. So you could hear almost, like, if you listen to K-Rock throughout the day, you could hear 10 different Pearl Jam songs and they only have one album out. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was it was just the weirdest thing but but man it was a combination of and I'll talk a lot about this stuff as we go forward but at that time it was a combination of awesome like heavy heavy drums you know the the signature sound that ended up defining grunge was this heavy dirty drum and bass you know very heavy percussion i mean the drums sounded heavy like he was playing with sticks that weighed twice as much as the other drummers on the you know definitely heavier than like jimmy chamberlain from the pumpkins and stuff who was more of a jazz drummer uh and then you had these two guitar parts these dueling guitars that were mike mike and stone they they kind of crafted the sound that was very 70s it was very much like classic rock and and for the people that say like 
the grunge was like short three minute pop songs with no solos. They haven't listened to Pearl Jam <laughs> yeah. because Mike McCready tore up the guitar. He it's was very Jimi Hendrix based. Like, yeah, I've heard yeah. that comparison all the time. It sounds well, like it, Jimi Hendrix. It really is because it's a lot of bluesy based stuff, but also heavy wah pedal, heavy distortion. Mike McCready is definitely a Jimi Hendrix disciple. That's a very astute analogy. And then, and then to top it all off, you have this lead singer, this Eddie Vedder guy who. I got to admit, this is going to sound kind of selfish on my part, but I was attracted to him as a singer because he had a deep voice and it was finally somebody I could emulate. Finally, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'll be honest with you. Before that, the only people that I could actually do a good job singing like were Jim Morrison and Elvis. <laughs> it was like that was it. <laughs> so all of a sudden, and then the 80s just destroyed any chance I had of being a singer because it was all, you know, Sebastian Bach and Axl Rose. When Eddie Vedder burst onto the scene, he had this dominating alpha male voice that was deep he had range god knows he had a ton of range but i could sing like him and that made me connect to the music a little bit more yes and then like you i i kind of had to like i never understood a word he said and we'll even talk a lot more about that as we dive into some of our song choices um and how much fun it was to try and track down lyrics to songs uh-huh. and stuff. but we'll get into that stuff but anyway that was it was just being in, in like see, being a part of them bursting onto the scene and i felt like i was there at ground zero you know seeing them play Lollapalooza and then seeing i remember when the videos debuted and then all of a sudden I, it was just i was there I, I felt like i was a part of it yeah and i i am jealous they are they're one of the bands that for as big a part of my life as they were for for that time period uh i've never seen pearl jam live um, all of my friends have, like even some of my friends out here, like uh, one of my good friends actually just saw them last year in Boston mm-hmm. uh, and, and offered me a chance. He's like, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, if it was any other weekend, I would, but yeah, the timing, right. timing didn't work out. And and definitely now that, I mean, if they're touring again with a new album, and actually, that, that brings me to the to the point that I wanted to make, um, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, because listeners, we are going to do kind of our normal format for this episode. We are going to hit you with a dozen songs that we have selected and curated for this episode. But as we were talking about before we started recording, it is likely, if not almost definite, that this is just Pearl Jam Volume 1 for us. Um, yeah. Because of how important the music was and how much we liked it and how many songs they've got in their bench. Uh, we could very well come back to this in a year with, with a bunch of more songs. Yeah. Um, but before we even get into the main track list for this... Part of the reason, part of the inspiration for doing this episode now is because Pearl Jam's 11th studio album, titled Gigaton, is coming out this month. When I heard that, I, I will be honest, I was shocked that this was their 11th album. Yeah, me too, <laughs> because, me too. Because as I mentioned in my intro, like they were huge for part of my life, but it was a finite part of my life. I thought it was really <laughs> just my, my early teenage, like junior high years, like the, the, those early right. 90s. And I felt like the quality of their music like kind of started to, to fade in the middle and then like towards the later 90s. And I just, I wasn't into it. And I haven't heard the last three Pearl Jam albums. And I didn't buy the two albums before that. So when I heard that Pearl Jam was coming out with a new album, I was like, mm, okay, I, I don't know if they're that relative, relevant to my life anymore, but you know, good, good for them for, for still doing the job. And then I heard the first single from the new album. And right away, somebody posted on Facebook, and they're like, paging David Byrne from the Talking Heads. Like, <laughs> right. I was like, yeah, that's I've a, heard that a lot, too. I was yeah. like, that's a weird comment. So I played the video and I listened to this song and 
Oh my god, it sounds like a Talking Heads song. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song is called Dance of the Clairvoyance, and I will play a clip for it right now. It goes through multiple parts of the song. It like changes tempos. It changes like different like parts and arrangements and everything. And like each time, it sounds like a talking head song. And I think they're really aggressively leaning into that. Like they they are mm-hmm. trying to do a talking head song, um, but just like not a cover version. And like yeah. Eddie Vedder has these parts. Like in the middle of it, he sings these lyrics. He's it's not a negative thought. I'm positive 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 and he's like biting these lines out and i was like i can see that from stop making sense i can see burn doing that yeah it's crazy yeah. with his little tourette's movements and yes. stuff like that yes <laughs> yeah i would even i i well i'm gonna piggyback on kind of what you said too i like the fact that you addressed how it seems like they've kind of lost relevance in your life recently i i might even take it a step further and say that for a while i mean i feel like they became kind of like prisoners of their own like we want to, we don't want to be popular. We don't want to be famous. It's all about the music and stuff. And they went on this thing where they stopped making videos and they stopped and they honestly painted themselves into a corner where they didn't be, they weren't relevant anymore. So I would actually, I would agree with you in, in the sense that I lost interest for a long time. I knew that they had put out albums. And I knew that they constantly toured and they were playing stuff, but it was just, it never became must see TV for me right. until kind of this whole like rebirth you know i mean just recently you know it was the rock and roll hall of fame you know i, I think a year or two ago or something and i saw that and then uh, you know now all of their concerts are uh, you know you can watch them all and they're playing they're playing bruce springsteen size sets i mean they're doing three hour sets everywhere that they play now and then the hype about a new album the first new album in what seven years i think the first new original studio album since 2013 and the the new track kind of did for me what it did for you it was it was like hey it's kind of it's kind of reinvigorating a little bit and it's all the for all the things that you said it sounds like and it reminds you of stuff it still still sounds like a pearl jam song though mm-hmm. you know it doesn't sound like they're aping somebody else's style or trying to blend into a modern world i didn't get that impression at all i got the feeling that they're just changing with the times and this is you know music is technology now and things like that so they can you can still have a pearl jam rocking mike mccready guitar riff with an electronic drum pattern it sounds like pearl jam yeah well with that let us get into our main set list for this episode again probably pearl jam volume (laughs) one (laughs) right uh you can kick us off what is the first track on your list Okay, track number one for me um, is probably the one that left the first indelible impression when I first heard it. It is track number four off their first album, 10, Why Go?
this song it just opens with just everything we talked about in the intro about just a heavy, heavy, wet-sounding drum. Just this this stop-you-in-your-tracks drum beat that starts the song off. And then the song is just a rip-roaring, angry, angst-ridden, although a lot of the first album was. But initially, and again, we've talked about this, and I'll probably keep reiterating this point, it was hard to understand what he was saying a lot of the time. So it was like, if the song didn't catch me with the music, then it probably wasn't going to catch me. So this one had that, like, everything about this song, the urgency, the energy about this song made me... Uh, and then he swore. He said, fucking it. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, kind of like, I understood that part. <laughs> so so that was cool. Then once I, I, I started then finding lyrics and finding, you know, he would do interviews on what MTV at the time, I guess. But, um, you know, he talked about this song being written about like some 13-year-old Chicago girl who was institutionalized because her parents caught her smoking pot and they didn't know what to do with it or how to deal with it. So they put her in a hospital for like two years and the he he told stories about uh, the the hospital and the insurance companies and all this stuff like that they were like using her as like a guinea pig like they kept her institutionalized they wouldn't let her out because they wanted to break her and then fix her and have it be a success story for pharmaceutical companies or something there's some like really long backstory but it's then when i heard that story i went and reread the lyrics and all of a sudden it it's like a gut punch mm-hmm. i was just like oh my god this song is angry in defense of this girl and we will see as we go forward eddie vetter has no problem shying he never shies away from political commentary right he's he records the world as it's happening through his songs and and speaks about it you know he talks we'll talk about racism we'll talk about gun violence we'll talk about all kinds of stuff but this was all of a sudden i was like okay this is not your typical this this band and again this was the first one from the first album that really grabbed me even though i think alive was already a single Mm -hmm. um But when I heard this, I was like, this guy's got something to say. And that changed kind of the way I viewed the band going forward. Yeah, I didn't know the story like behind it about like this girl being institutionalized. I didn't know that for a long time. I, I heard that sort of anecdotally, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago at a time when mm. I wasn't even thinking about like Pearl Jam, really. But I always got from the lyrics this sense of loss and alienation. Uh, not like loss, or I shouldn't say loss as in like the, the feeling of losing something, but of being lost. Yeah. Of kind of sure. being feeling helpless uh, and, and just kind of like alienated and stuff like that. Um, and victimized like that. But yeah, for me, this song is always like it, the first thing that you said. It's, I, I, my notes were just drums, just yep. drums, man. <laughs> right. It's just like that, the way it kicks off, just like this, this heavy Dave Cruz and drums. And then something that I've always noticed that I've kind of liked about this song because I mean, for as much as a hard <clears throat> rocker, you hear the guitars like layer to the back. And I, I, I think it's Stone's guitar. It might be Mike's, but like there's kind of like this washed out Walla type of trippy guitar. Oh, that's Mike, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the back that you don't hear. And it's it's just a really good good sounding song. But yeah, it's, as you said, yeah, the political, I mean, we will get to it with the very next song we talk about. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, mean, I just want to add, uh, again, like like you, I, I don't want listeners who aren't familiar with the song, I don't want them to think they need to know the story behind it. Right. It just it just happened to, that grabbed me and made me kind of re-listen to it. But like you, I mean, lyrically, you can still connect with that. Mm-hmm. Everything you said makes perfect sense. So it's, yeah, this song just, like I said, this song stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. All right, my first song on the list, uh, another song from their first album, 10. This one is Porch. Ah! 
First of all, I, I noticed looking at our list, it, this is very 10 heavy, which I was yes, not expecting <laughs> because I never thought of 10 as my favorite Pearl Jam album. I liked it. I mean, I, but I, I mean, my go tos were always the first three. Yeah, um, but yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought of uh, ten as my favorite album. But we we have a lot of ten songs on this list going forward. Yeah. Um, I love. I. I mean, I, I should say I love this song, but it's also permanently associated with the live version from their MTV Unplugged, Unplugged performance. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, yeah, and and for people, if you haven't seen it, or if it's been 30 years <laughs> since you've seen it, whatever, um, this is the culmination of their set, and it features Eddie Vedder freaking out the control booth that he's going to drop an F-bomb that they're like, panicking <laughs> to censor, and then he censors himself just to kind of mess with them. Uh, Eddie falling <laughs> off of his stool while the band is jamming out. Yeah, after playing Airplane. Yeah. Uh, the bassist Jeff uh, standing up on the drum kit and playing the crash cymbal with his guitar in time like in, in, with the song like keeping the keeping the beat um and then eventually uh, and most notably eddie stands up on his stool and writes the word pro choice on his arm in black marker mm-hmm. as for the song's meaning uh i mean at one time i kind of thought it was just another song about Eddie's turmoil over his parents' situation and the dad that he never knew. There's a famous story that kind of shaped a ton of his early music. Yes. Uh, right. Was the story that Eddie grew up believing that his stepfather was his actual father, and he didn't find out until he was in his teenage years, like 17, his mother finally told him that, no, that wasn't your biological father. Your father is this other guy. And by the time Eddie tracked him down to find out who he was, the guy was dead. He had died shortly before Eddie ever could have connected with him. And yes. that really threw him for uh, a mind fuck and it, it yeah. but it also well and the stepfather the stepfather wasn't a great guy no no I mean, no he, yeah he and wasn't, he's, wasn't he's good to his mom yeah. yeah there was there was a lot of there's a lot i mean this has so many layers right <laughs> uh so at one point i thought this was just another like the lyrics related to the song were just part of that story and and dealing with it and and they might also be but when he's performing this song and he writes pro-choice on his <laughs> on his arm, I mean, he is literally wearing it on his sleeve yep. and literally taking a stand. You can't separate that context from <laughs> what the song is about. So you do listen to it and you feel the lyrics and it takes on a new political activist stance. And you, the lyrics like, all the bills go by, initiatives are taken up by the middle. Uh, and then the lyrics at the end, this could be the day. I mean, they have a much more charged feel oh, God, when you yeah. think about the, the political nature of this song. Um, and yeah, I, I've just liked that for for being kind of an, an activist uh, or in, like interested in that in that issue. I mean, he, he takes it up front, and, and he was bold in that, and talking about that when I, I know any other rock stars who were being political at that time. Correct. Not in yeah, the 90s. Absolutely. I mean, I remember that was an, an issue from the 70s and, and the 60s in Woodstock, but like by the time the 80s came around, I was like, no, the only you know political stance was more cocaine, less cocaine. Yeah, and that was a that was a choice that we all struggled with back then. But <laughs> yeah, yeah I, no, I think I think it was really neat. I mean, I will never forget the imagery of that moment when he writes with the sharpie on his arm. And before that, I don't think I ever even made the connotation. The word ports, the letters of ports, start pro-choice. Like it, I never even saw that. And if you flip flop the O and the R in ports, you get pro. You know, yeah. it's, I like. I wondered if that was intentional. Like all of a sudden now, I can't. I can't separate the two. All right, what else you got? Okay, next, um, uh, we'll veer away from 10, even though it was recorded around the same, t- same time period. I'm going to go with number three on my list is from the movie singles, uh, State of Love and Trust. State of Love and Trust is 
this song is cool because this was uh, this was a riff and again going back to that box that i referenced before this was a, a demo that they had they had the music for it i think right around i think right around the time that eddie was joining the band and basically he kind of finished off the album by writing the lyrics all of it but this one according to what i've heard um eddie actually wrote the lyrics to this after seeing a cut of the movie Cameron Crowe showed him, you know, for those of you un- uninitiated, Pearl Jam actually appeared in the movie singles. <laughs> they actually, they've got speaking roles in the movie. So it's, it's, yeah, they play, it, they play Matt Dillon's band. Say like the name of the band. Yeah, yeah Citizen Dick. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Enough said. Uh, <laughs> wait, what was, their, what was the t-shirt? The Touch catchphrase? Me, I'm Dick. Yes, of course. <laughs> Which has a lot of meanings, you know. It could, be, it, touch, it could be, I'm Dick and you can touch me, or it could mean something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never get tired of that joke. <laughs> um, so, but Pearl Jam saw uh, Eddie saw a rough cut of this movie, and he said what it, what, what he took it because this is it's it's again you know Pearl Jam's kind of a, Eddie's a dark guy in terms of his writing and stuff like that. You know, for uh, what Cameron Crowe was going for is this like romantic comedy about relationships and kind of things. Not so much comedy, but you know, it didn't veer too far from the path from stuff that he does, like Almost Famous or Jerry Maguire and things like that. Um, this song, Eddie wrote the lyrics and said, he said it was a song about struggling to be faithful and battling your own inner demons when opening yourself up to falling in love. Now, that's what he said in interviews. But if I, every time I listen to the lyrics, I, I, it strikes me as something darker than that. I always kind of took it was, I, I said, it, I thought it was more like, like, cause there's a line in there about like the barrel shakes uh, aimed directly at my head. You know, I mean, things that sound like somebody committed suicide. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy references and darker references in that. So if you kind of marry the comments that Eddie has made about the song with my impressions of it, I kind of view it a little bit more as like a, a, a song about somebody that's just battling the voices in their head, you know, yeah. whether or not to open up to say, if if you want to make it about relationships and stuff, that's fine. Um, I, first of all, it's a, I love the song for its guitar riff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, and, and this was on, this was actually on the, the bootleg of the MTV unplugged thing that we talked about. I don't think this aired in the original half hour MTV unplugged, no, but no. because they only aired four songs in the special, but they played six. Yeah. And on one of my bootlegs, they had this one on it. And this was awesome as an acoustic song too. So, yeah, that's about all. What do, what do you think about it? Uh, you know what? The thing about this song that I've always really liked was just having this on my my mixes because it, this was on Lollapalooza. And I think then then later on you made me – just when you knew that I liked Pearl Jam, you made me a Pearl Jam mix. Yeah. Um, I think after that, that was after Versus came out because it had uh, songs from everything. Right, um, right. And when I found out that this wasn't on one of the albums, there was just for me at that young age, I felt like this was kind of like a special secret bonus track. Mm-hmm. That people who would buy the album, people who liked Pearl Jam and were buying the albums, didn't know about this song. And I had some secret intelligence that they didn't have. Yes, um, absolutely. And I it just too. made me feel cooler. cooler yeah, it felt like you were in the club. Like yeah, you were exactly. in the secret club. Um, you were a VIP. Yeah. Uh, related to that, I mean, I, I will concede, though, of the two songs from singles, I think I've always liked the song Breath more than this one. You know what's surprising about that? I think most people do, really? and I've never understood why, because to me, it's, there's no contest. <laughs> I've always loved this song way more than Breath, but for most people that I've talked to going way back to when this came out, Breath just seemed to sound more like Pearl Jam's sound. Mm-hmm. I think they, like more people, maybe it's featured more prominently in the movie, but I think more people talk about, oh yeah, the song from singles, Breath. Yeah, and I yeah. always say, I always I, to, for me, it's no contest. This one blows that other one away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I also I, I found out that at the time at the time that they were filming that with Cameron Crowe, they weren't even called Pearl Jam at that time. That was back when the band's original name after uh, that are joined was Mookie Blaylock. They were named That's after right. a basketball player. That's uh, right, which yeah, became the album title ten. Yeah, it was his jersey number. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, one other little note: I've heard a cover version of this song, "State of Love and Trust," uh, by the Gaslight Anthem. They did a live cover version, and they they really? were one of kind of one of the last like new rock bands that I discovered, which got almost ten years ago, because <laughs> that was about the time when I stopped discovering new music, just thanks to streaming services and everything. I just I I don't hear a lot of new stuff anymore. But the Gaslight Anthem, they were like the last really cool new rock band that I discovered. And they did a cover version of this, which I like. That's, that's I got to check that out. One of my really good friends out here, another guitar player that I kind of jam with every once in a while, his name's Jason. He's a big fan of Gaslight Anthem. Mm-hmm. He he likes them a lot. Like he's got playlists of them and everything. And I'll, I've never heard them do this, but that that's interesting. I'll have to run that by him and see if he knows it. The next song on our list is the first song that we're covering from the album Versus, their second album. And this song is Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. I seem to recognize your face Haunting, familiar, yeah I can't seem to place it Cannot find the candle of thought To light your name Lifetime with me All these changes take place I wish I'd seen the place But no one's ever taken me Hearts and thoughts, they fade Fade And thoughts they fade, fade away. Yes, you heard me say it correctly. That is the <laughs> longest Pearl Jam title I think they've ever done. Uh, and they did it on purpose just to kind of be different on the album because all of their other song titles are like one or two words. Yeah, I've heard that too. This was kind of like a, a slap in the face commentary to like media that said that they were uncreative with their titles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is one of the signature ballads from the album, the other one being Daughter, which is much more known. And we, we talk a little bit about Daughter, I think, when we did the uh, the 1993 yeah. episode of Record Rev, because right. um, that was huge, and I, I, I love that song a lot. But this one, well, like Daughter, one of the things that really stuck with me is I distinctly remember in seventh grade, me and my friends JT and Alex walking home from school singing these two songs, Daughter and Elderly <laughs> Woman. Not understanding the magnitude of the lyrics or anything like that, oh uh, but just because we could. And as you mentioned, I mean, one of the things I liked about Eddie Vedder is I could hit that vocal register. It wasn't right. it wasn't hard to get there. Um, and no other singers sounded like him at the time. There were many imitators that came after. But, I mean, the lyrics, they're fairly innocuous by Eddie Vedder standards. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, you get a sense of regret and nostalgia and feeling like time has passed you, and that makes you question your choices. But according to him, like, there's not, like, a deeper, sadder story behind it of, like, his, of his own personal pain. It was they were recording the album, and he just – he saw this woman – in a, in the small town where they were <laughs> right, and he just kind of made up this story about her and everything. And um, but I mean, like the, again, those feelings 
nostalgia, feeling like time is passing you, making you question, like, what the fuck does that mean to a 13-year-old? But, but right, it also, yeah. it had a really good tune. And I liked that it was it was a break because it's just an all-acoustic song, um, which I, I always liked that the band could jam just as hard with acoustic guitars as evidenced by their MTV Unplugged appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just like, it was a... It was a break from the rest of the album, but it felt like it was uh it it felt more meaningful or, or powerful than it was, even if the the story really is just kind of very simple and mundane. There was just something about it that I liked. I think this is one of Eddie Vedder's best vocal performances. Um, and he's got a couple others that we'll talk about on this episode, but I, I think this is one of his best in terms of just clarity and natural delivery like it's easy to understand him he makes singing the song feel effortless um and he just makes singing that it seem easy that's interesting i'm glad you point that out because i agree with you however i'm gonna say like there was they released a stripped down acoustic demo of the song was the b-side to go off that mm-hmm. album and i remember playing them both and it had no band it was literally much more raw and a few of the lyrics were a little different but it was just eddie playing the guitar and you could tell it's a demo but i actually i actually prefer that one a little more because it's not quite as polished mm. in, in a weird way and they're very subtly different but um yeah just for some reason i mean there's not much more i could say about the song i i love it for like you said for its simplicity it's almost like he just took a mental picture of a moment in a diner yeah. and wrote a song about it kind of thing but there I mean, is the song, some the song title sounds like what you would label a photograph yes it does yeah it does very much so um but i i did kind of like you it kind of you know, when I look back at it now, I revisit it and it's, it's, there's a hint of sadness in it. You know, there's something, uh, you know, this being smuck in the, stuck in the small town when the world's spinning around you and you get left behind or forgotten kind of thing. And there's just a, that moment of resignation kind of thing that maybe I didn't quite realize, you know, at the time when I first heard the song, I was like, oh, I can play this and sing it. You know, it was, <laughs> that was me. I was like, I can finally do a full Pearl Jam song, <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, there's something, like, I, I think this song holds up really well, even even more so now. Mm-hmm. All right, what's next? <laughs> okay, well, we're going back to 10, I guess. <laughs> what we're gonna do. Let's go back to the original. Um, this song, I, I, I don't know how else to intro it or set it up other than Black.
okay. Black is one of the most powerful Pearl Jam songs that I have on on any list I could ever make. I couldn't make a playlist without this one. Um, and I've got two parts of the two descriptions I'm going to describe because again, this was also one of those that was played heavily, circulated heavily during the MTV Unplugged performance, which was amazing watching him go off and this this tension filled outro that's not on the album and this like kind of beckoning pleading to the universe um about this woman or something but what i thought was really interesting was and i discovered this more recently as i've revisited pearl jam and stuff didn't know this at the time but the record label was desperate to put black out as a single they said this and it does honestly it screams radio single especially in 1992 uh, it's just everything about it sounds like oh yeah this would totally be a single and the band refused and eddie said it's too delicate a song it's too i, I don't want to commercialize it and this was a common thing with pearl jam kind of fighting against the the authoritarian rule of record labels but he was, uh, I mean, it got, it got so bad that Eddie Vedder donned a fake personality and started prank calling other radio stations, asking for it to see if the labels slipped them copies against the band's wishes. So he, he was, this is like, this is just a great story about how the lengths he went to make sure that the record label wasn't putting Blackout as a single. But unfortunately, it burned him because MTV, they recorded it live for Unplugged. And MTV then just played that. They mm-hmm. circulated that. They, they put that in. And that's how people discovered it and kind of took it upon themselves. Um, the actual meaning of the song, I think, is really open to interpretation. I know some people say it's a breakup song or, or it's about a girl that died or something. Um, I've also heard it, it could be about a girl with a miscarriage um, that lost a child or something. And, and, and I always that's the version. That's the story that I always kind of associated with it. And I think there were specific words uh, about like, you know, seeing the kids, you know, that yeah. kids that play and stuff. There was something about that. I kind of always wondered, like that line had to mean something like that's not just that's a weird line to put in a song about a girl that broke up with you. So I always kind of took it at that. And I had around the same time I wrote a song. You probably remember it called Still, mm-hmm. which was um, essentially short for Stillborn. But it was it was the same kind of thing. It was my version of the song was about a couple that lost a child and the struggle to move past it and what happens to a relationship. And in my song, I'm pleading, you know, I don't want to lose both of you tonight. And that was the kind of thing that I so that was for some reason. I always interpreted black that way. I don't know if that's correct or not. I don't know if other people view it that way, but that was, I kind of had that same sense of like in the unplugged performance at the end, when Eddie Vedder starts kind of crying out in his lyrics and he's improving, it gets me, it gets me deep. And I feel like the song has, has more layers than we'll ever even know. Yeah. I, I can definitely hear some of those connections. Um, I did usually just think of it as kind of a breakup song, but you know, uh, this this one is another contender in my mind for one of Eddie Vedder's best vocal performances yeah. for sure. completely different reasons, though. Um, <laughs> yeah. in, in this case, I think it's because maybe of all of the songs that he, they've ever done, I think this one hits like the emotional resonance that you, you really want. Like the, this connects to the audience. You hear the pain of where he's coming from, and it's it's very personal. It's very dark it's pleading for that connection and i yeah i just think there's like there's an emotional connection that he makes with this song with his vocals uh and a range from from high and low that mm-hmm. is 
just not as strong in the other song. Not not because it's not not powerful or something, but it's just it's so much more so. Yeah, agree. I just think it's it's yeah one of his best vocals. Um, it's it's an amazing ballad. It's achingly beautiful. Like yeah. the whole band is on full display. The guitars in this are, are great. And a this, piano. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like they've got all elements to it. Mm-hmm. This was maybe the first time I realized that a rock band could release a really kind of sad, tragic ballad about heartbreak and loss that that didn't sound like an '80s power ballad. Right. Um, that, that still had all of the qualities of their headbanging arena rock songs. Sure. Um, yeah. The band wasn't sacrificing any of their integrity for this song. They were just turning the lights down. Um, yeah. Wow. Great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And before this, I mean, it, it just, it wasn't my experience that rock bands did songs this slow, this, this moody, right. uh, this depressing. But still perfectly natural. So yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, if this wasn't on your list, it probably would have been on mine. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I I I, I'm, I don't want to go too much farther with this song, but I think of I I think prior to what you just said, I think record labels that wanted bands to put ballads out were always contrived and mm-hmm. kind of like you know like the every rose has its thorn kind of thing, right. you know, which which sounded like somebody attempted to write a ballad kind yeah. of thing, and this never struck me as that. It didn't sound it didn't sound contrived it almost it like i almost i respect the song more now for the fact that eddie vetter didn't want it released that mm-hmm. kind of thing that 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 lends some power and weight to it all right changing gears changing sound quite a bit the next <laughs> song on my list is do the evolution from the 1997 album Yield. This was their fifth studio album. It was the last Pearl Jam album that I ever bought. Um, I was to the two after that, but they uh, didn't leave a lasting impression. Um, and most of this album and No Code, the one before it, I thought there were some good tracks, but it just it, they didn't really move me that much. Um, but I always liked this one, and interestingly, this was not released as a single, but there was a music video for this, <laughs> and I think it was their first official music video since Jeremy, which was on their first album. I think like, you're right. They really went after they won the MTV Award for Best Music Video. Like, like Eddie Vedder and the, the band were really staunch, and what you said in their anti-popularity stance, they really kind of yep. buried themselves, and it's just the music. We don't want to do music videos. We don't want to promote that way. We play yeah. the music and we tour. That's why. That's how the audience should discover us. Um, 
but they made a video for this one. And interestingly, it is an animated music video, which was one of the things that struck me. But for some of the geek cred that this video comes with it, it was co-directed by Kevin Altieri, who was one of the main directors on Batman the Animated Series, did some of the best episodes of that cartoon. I love it. And the other co-director who sort of took the animation style is a guy named Todd McFarlane, who people who are familiar with the Fire and Water Podcast Network will know that he is a very famous comic book artist who co-created the character of Venom from the Spider-Man comics, and he created the character of Spawn, who was, uh, there was an 80s, uh, or sorry, there was a 90s superhero movie based on him. As soon as I saw the video, I recognized his influence. I thought that was crazy. Um, but... The song itself is really about the corrupting influence of power and technology and progress. It really hammers on these anti-environmental issues um, that, that are prevalent in both the lyrics and in the, the music video especially. But I just love it that Vetter kind of adopts this character uh, for the song, and I just I love the voice that he brings to it. There's there's this kind of arrogance and hubris the way he sings. He's like, "I'm advanced. I'm the first mammal to wear pants." Uh, later on, he sings, "I have appetite for nightly feast. Those ignorant Indians got nothing on me." You just hear this sort of like savage evil in this character's voice as he's singing and and presenting himself as this bad guy. I love it. But another thing about the song that really stuck with me, even more so than like the lyrics of the video, there's a guitar solo that's actually like early on in the song. It's after the first verse. First verse, yeah. First verse, of course. And it's it's not as high pitched as like a, a usual McCready solo, like what you would expect from that style. It's like really kind of like darker. There's a fuzzy distortion effect that you don't associate with with solos very much. But I love it. That sound, yeah. Yeah, I, I, if memory serves, I think that actually might even be a Stone Gossard solo. Maybe I, I, I actually think it is. Now I could be wrong. Don't don't quote me, but I, I remember. I know specifically what part you're talking about. Now, of course, we've never seen a video of it, so it's it's, it's tough to say. Um, I don't have much to add to this other than I, I agree with you. I th- I think it's cool that you pointed out the lyrics. And what what I do know about this particular album was that they were at kind of a crossroads because they had obviously they kind of got anti fame and popularity. They had already done that, so they wanted to just release albums with no fanfare at all and just kind of put out the stuff and tour. And then there was some infighting in the band and things like that. Now nothing near as bad as what some of our other favorite bands go through, but there was a lot of pressure on Eddie feeling like he was the driving force of the band it was him doing everything and the band was his backup band and there was a lot of that so when they went in to record this album they all made a pact and said hey i want eddie said i want everybody to bring their own ideas we're going to make this a collaborative effort everybody you can bring lyrics you can bring whatever you want to the table let's make the let's write and record this album as a band and they did it and the band got reinvigorated because they felt like cool we're not eddie's but side project. And Eddie always said then he didn't feel the pressure of having to be like, like I have to finish everything and all this stuff. So some of the bands even helped write lyrics and things like that. But the reason I bring all that stuff up is because it's, it's, this is a first, as far as I could tell, or as far as I remember, this was the first time that the band all kind of contributed and took some of the pressure off of Eddie being the vocalist and the, the writer. And I think it's neat that you point out the lyrics being told from a third person point of view. It's, 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 it's just a cool story. It's a cool anecdote to a cool track. 
All right. What are you going to follow that up with? Okay, next on my list is uh, probably the first song from the third album, I believe, that we're going to touch on. And it is one of my, obviously we're doing favorites here, but one of the greatest both live and studio recordings I've ever heard Pearl Jam do. It's Corduroy. God, this song! I could, this song is great. This is this is obviously going to be on any top five list I ever do with Pearl Jam. It's got a lot of layers to it, but essentially, it's it, uh, lyrically, it's kind of about like the band's disdain for fame and fortune. This was now at this point now they were the biggest band in the world. They were you know this is when they put out the third album and they were setting records left and right every time an album that they released they broke their own record for number of units sold in the first week or the first you know whatever going gold and platinum and whatnot. Um, and and they were kind of it was weird because they were they weren't making videos they weren't doing anything to promote it was it was a very strange time for a band that was that big to be anti being that big um so there was this really cool kind of humbling idea that it, it was it was humbling in the sense that it's it's very revealing about how this song essentially is about Eddie basically admitting he spent his whole life wanting to be a famous rock star until he got it and then he was a famous rock star and then he wished it would all go away and that kind of thing. And that's kind of the way I took it. So it's lyrically breakdown. The, I mean, there are lyrics about, you know, being anti people trying to copy him. There's lyrics about him being anti the record labels, trying to tell them what kind of band they should be and what they should do and stuff. Like he sings, I don't want to hear from those who know. And then there's a line. He says uh, they can buy, but they can't put on my clothes and things. It's, it's, it's really, it's really self effacing. So, you know, it's, it's very honest and i love that and plus it's just got this it's just got this amazing guitar part and it probably has one of my favorite bridges of all time about the two minute 40 two minute 30 second mark after the second chorus when he the band breaks and goes into another melody and he goes everything has chains absolutely nothing's changed and he goes off that part of the song kicks ass yeah. and then he and then they drop back into the the chorus kind of part for it but I don't know. I just thought it was cool because this is this was we were also dealing this particular time period was when some of my idols, some of my favorite people in the world, both actors, musicians, whatever, were kind of killing themselves off with fame and stuff. You know, River Phoenix had died. Kurt Cobain had died. There was a lot. It was, you know, these people that were kind of trying to turn inward and the trappings of fame and paparazzi was like destroying people that had fragile egos and weren't meant to be that big and stuff. So there was, there was just, it was, it was very internal about Eddie, but I could also see it was projected to a bigger world. It's like, you know, st- like you can like your idols, but don't try and be them and kind of mm-hmm. stuff. That's it's just what I took. It was like trappings of fame, I guess, if you could 
that's the way I took it. Yeah, I read that the title Corduroy is actually Eddie had this corduroy jacket when the band was starting out that he bought for like thirty dollars or something like that. And like the the record label, like they were pushing like these imitators and and people trying to like look like them and act like them mm-hmm. wearing the same type of jacket that costs six hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> and this was just about like the commercialization and the merchandising of the band that he was just like so frustrated with or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I haven't heard that story, but I remember the jacket. It was a brown corduroy jacket yep. that he wore everywhere. Yep. For the first couple of years of the band, he wore it everywhere. Yeah, he wore it for the first couple of songs at the MTV Unplugged thing, and he took it off. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. But yeah, I think I think it's very interesting that 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 story. I mean, I didn't even know that, but I think it's it's awesome because there are lines that line that I talked about. You know, like they can buy, but they can't put on my clothes. In other words, it can't be me. That kind of thing. I think it's great that that's where the song came, the title came from. That's awesome. I have the most distinct memory of hearing this song for the first time. On the radio, Q101, um, and it wasn't, again, the song was not released as a single, but they must have gotten an advanced copy because it was before the album came out. It was such a hotly anticipated album, especially by us, but like really by everybody, as you said, because they were so huge. Everybody wanted it. And Q101 is like, we've got the album, we're going to play a song for you that nobody has heard before. And what I remember is we were listening to it driving home from the family in Chicago. It, it must have been one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it must have been one of those, like, our family has, like, we used to get together because a, a bunch of us cousins had birthdays either in August, September, October. Um, there's, like, a whole bunch of us that all have birthdays, like, within, like, the same six-week range. So uh, we all used to sort of, like, get together and, like, do a sort of, like, family joint birthday celebration for a bunch <laughs> right. of kids. And so I think it must have been something like that because the album came out before Thanksgiving, so it couldn't have been a Thanksgiving or a Christmas event. Um, but I just remember you, me, mom and dad were driving home. It was late. We were, it was in the dark or something, so it must have been later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it might have been like late September or something. But going home and this song came on the radio and we were listening to her like, oh my God, a new Pearl Jam song. I remember thinking that melodically, musically, it was catchy as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there was something about it that seemed weird and off to me, and I couldn't figure out what it was until just as I was prepping for this, and I was really listening to it, and I was reading the lyrics. None of the lyrics in the chorus repeat. Oh, he never repeats a lyric. He changes them subtly. The like the melody stays yeah. the same for the chorus, right? But he changes the lyrics each chorus, so he never actually repeats anything. And then at the end, after that bridge that I agree with you, it's awesome, it's a great bridge, he goes to a chorus and then another verse after that. It ends on the verse. The song ends with a verse, not a chorus. So there's just this this weird asymmetry to the song, and I'm just kind of like, this is a little bit different, but it's still really catchy. But yeah, I love it. It's a great song. Yeah, Yeah, I'm trying to remember that time frame, because I have a... And again, I don't know. Do you know specifically when the album was released? Do you remember? I looked it up. It was November 22nd. Okay. Uh, and, and so, because, and yeah, that would have been a few days before Thanksgiving. Yeah, because for some reason, we, I we feel... got you got you got Vitology in the midnight sale. I remember that yes, was another yeah. thing. Well, that's where that's where I was going with because I remember listening to the album in our kitchen. Yes, on yeah. on the boombox with you. You woke you woke me up because you got yes. back from downtown desk after buying it. At midnight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I just remember sitting there going through it and like you know that was like our routine back then. I would go <laughs> I out think, at midnight. I and think get I every listened album. to the first couple of songs, and then I was like, dude, I'd go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and when I woke up, when I woke up, I went into the kitchen and you had written down notes of every song with your review on like a yellow pad. Yeah, I think by the time you were getting up, I was like tag teaming you and saying, "Okay, you're up. I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> your turn. <laughs> your shift. Like yeah, shift you're... switch." <laughs> Like that, oh God, remember that old Looney Tunes cartoon where the, the coyote and the, the sheepdog, like, they spend the whole episode trying to, like, the, the wolf's trying to get the, the coyote's trying to get the sheep, and then at the end, he's like, all right, have a good day, Bill. Yep, Bob, see you. All right, that takes us to our next song, which was also on the album Vitology, uh, one of their best-known songs, Better Man. was a number one hit for eight straight weeks despite the fact that <laughs> as as is pretty much we, we a popular theme for this episode some of their best known songs were not released as a single i swear and he was trying to sabotage it with the single why did he release immortality as a single from this album and not corduroy or better man so uh yeah but this was a huge hit um I, I think this one belongs on the list of the greatest songs that are about abusive relationships. Sure, um, yeah. I, we could put uh, In the Shape of a Heart by Jackson Brown on that list. We could <laughs> right. put Love the Way You Lie by Rihanna and Eminem on that list. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no other evidence. Eddie Vedder dedicated this song to the bastard who married his mom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. As we, yeah, as we mentioned. Yeah. Uh, his, the stepdad that he thought was his actual dad. Um and you kind of talked about this when you talked about the, the demos. This song was written when Eddie was a teenager. Yeah. Um, they recorded a version of it for the Versus sessions, mm-hmm. but Eddie wasn't happy with it. He just he didn't like it. It was too personal and everything. And the producer, Brendan O'Brien, I think, yes. um, he made the mistake of, of when he heard it, he was like, oh, my God, this is going to be your biggest single. This is a yep. huge pop hit. Yep. Uh, and that was like the last thing that Eddie wanted to hear. Uh, yeah, so Eddie, exactly. Like, he, 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 Eddie like shut it down. He's like, kill it. He's like, no, we're not going to put it on the album. And O'Brien was like, are you freaking nuts? He's like trying to get the band to rally are around. Are you daft, like, man? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you've got to do this. And Eddie, like, he he recorded another version as a concession. And then they still didn't like that version either. So yeah. he, he crushed it. So he couldn't. Um, he almost gave the song, actually, the lyrics to another band to record for some tribute album or something. Wow, I didn't know that. And, yeah, and, and oh my the God, thank God like, he can, didn't. You cannot, if you don't do anything, you cannot give the song away to somebody else. Um, yeah, keep this in the vault. Yeah. <laughs> 
they ended up recording for Vitalogy. I think that was their third or fourth recorded version that actually makes the album. And it's it sounds uh, allegedly it sounds very different than what the song started out as. Um, but he still he he refused to release it as a single. But it, I mean, its greatness could not be denied. And because it was so popular, one of the things I've always liked about this song is this is the first Pearl Jam song that I heard girls talking about at school. Ah. And that astonished me in junior high or, or, or in high school. Um, by the time, like, yeah, when when this was coming out, that the girls that I had crushes on who listened to Madonna and En Vogue right. and Mariah Carey and like that pop stuff, they were talking about a Pearl Jam song lovingly. I was like, oh my god, this is like the like the transcendent quality of this song is is, is amazing. Yeah. So finally, you were like, I got them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well. Exactly. So. I, I honestly have nothing else to say. This song is fantastic in and of itself. Um, you're right. I mean, it's everything you've described. The impetus of this, or the, the inception of the song goes way back, and it's very honest and revealing, and it's basically a plea to to anybody in an abusive relationship that's settling, you know, settling, you, you know, just don't – you. You know, you don't have to. You can find a better man, and it's 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 that powerful and it's that good. And you said it all. <laughs> One last thing that I want to point out about this song too was, and this was strange at the time to me, and I don't know why. But when I look back over the band, but this was right around the time that I discovered Eddie Vedder was playing guitar during a lot of these songs. Like on Vitalogy, he kind of took front and center and started playing a third guitar player in the band and was leading off a lot of the songs. He was actually like I. Prior to that, I mean, most music, most singers are musicians too. So, you, but like prior to that, I don't think he ever played the guitar live in some of the earlier albums and stuff, or maybe one or two songs. And now, if you look at Pearl Jam today, he plays guitar every song out there. There's maybe there may be in a set of maybe twenty songs, he might only be a lead singer with no guitar for maybe four or five. Oh, wow. Like it's it's pretty interesting how heavily he features a third guitar player in the band now, and he is the one that leads off this song. This like the the band is is silent for like almost until the first the end of the first chorus kind of thing or even in the second verse yeah, yeah so so I just thought that was really interesting that all of a sudden I'm like wow Eddie Vedder so now and and now it's interesting there were three guitar band it's just funny I, that shocked me at the time being like oh hey he can play the guitar <laughs> <laughs> and I I think it was just something like that I think probably his confidence in his guitar playing probably like sure. I mean, yeah. Stone and Mike those guys were professionals so that was their job they were they were doing it and I think like he he had learned to play the guitar when he was writing when he was a kid but like he he just wasn't on their level so probably like over time just he was he was working at it and probably just practicing so he probably felt more confident in his guitar playing yeah yeah um, i bet you're right i bet you i bet you're absolutely right and there's probably certain songs too that are so personal to him that he felt like i have to be the one doing this there's a little factoid that i looked up just uh during my research and it almost broke my head but when he was first writing this song again he was a, a kid um mm-hmm. If you listen to the music, it is the the melody, the tone, and everything is based on the song "Save It for Later" by the English Beats, that '80s pop song. And if you play the songs back to back, I did it last night after I learned about this. I played it back. I was like, "Oh my god!" You can swap the lyrics for each song. I was like, "It is so close." Like I was like, "No wonder it was one of their best like pop hits." It sounds like an '80s Brit pop prog song or something like that. Oh my god. It is scary. <laughs> oh my god! I I I hate to. Say, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to have to. <laughs> oh my god! I'm going to have to go do that after this episode. 
Shit. <laughs> well, well, before that ruins Pearl Jam for you, uh, hit me with the next song on your list. Oh, good save. Good save. <laughs> well done, man. Um, okay, so for my, my second to last choice, I'm going to go with a song off of Versus, Rearview Mirror. I love the way it's spelled as one word. I just thought that was so cool. I don't know why, but it's just this is again. You know, we're kind of we're talking a lot about this one singular story about Eddie Vedder and his stepfather and that relationship and stuff. This is again one of those that stemmed from that relationship kind of thing. Um, this is about Eddie Vedder uh, finally getting up the courage to leave behind his home life and go off on his own, and you know, finally. Uh, you know, everything looks clearer in your rearview mirror kind of thing. This is probably the catchiest angry song I've, <laughs> I can think of. It's, it's, a, it's a weird, it's got a huge sense of urgency and this very powerful driving, especially it builds. It even yeah. builds to a crescendo at the end where you feel like uh, like it's like almost like, oh my God, I got to do something. Like you want to shake something because the energy picks up and picks up. And it's, it's amazing. And then it just goes off the rails at the end. But it, 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 there's something, but it's catchy, which I just thought was was cool. This one really kind of clicked for me during that uh, the the week that Kurt Cobain died and Pearl Jam was headlining Saturday Night Live. They did three songs on Saturday Night Live. I re- I'll never forget. I don't remember seeing any other band do that, but it's, it was so powerful. And I remember this. And again, this was another one. Eddie Vedder took the guitar and he led off the song playing the guitar in this song. I was just like, wow, okay. Do they need three guitar players? Like that kind of thing. (laughs) But this was so urgent and powerful and moving. And it's it's got kind of, I don't know. I I, I can't even really put it into words. Just uh, there's something about this song that I think is catchy and awesome, yet driving and emotional and all this stuff together into one. And it makes me want to like go throw like, a punch through a wall <laughs> in a good way of course yeah. but when you like when you were sending before before i got the cds of the albums uh and mm-hmm. you just made me that, that pearl jam mix with what you thought were the best songs of both 10 and verses yeah uh listening to those this one stood out and became my favorite for a long time oh cool. uh, I, I would actually say this was my first favorite pearl jam song that like i really just liked more than the others and just like in a big way um and you know favorites come and go they change it over time and everything yeah, yeah. this one was like one of the first ones that i was like yes this one before all others um 
you're right, it has this absolutely sort of driving sound from the guitar, and then when the drums pick up, it it feels like you're racing something or trying to escape from something, which the song is really kind of like about. I remember for a while, like, I used to think the song was about suicide or something like that, or Mm -hmm. uh, um, which there might be echoes of that, shades of that. I don't don't think that's a horribly off interpretation, Um, but it seemed more just kind of like leaving a bad relationship, um, whether that's a, a family relationship, romantic relationship, some kind of like just running from your past self. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I agree with you when I first heard it, when the album first came out. I think that that's, I just I just kind of generalized it and made it more generic and stuff. I think only in recent years have I heard, no, this is one of those that he's, you know, and there's, there's, I mean, I'm sure you can interpret it any way you want to. I mean, he's not like claiming ownership, saying this is the only way to view that song. Right. But he has referenced that th- this was also very personal for him about just leaving his stepfather. Yeah. And, I mean, it's all there in like the last line. Saw things so much clearer once yeah. in my rearview mirror. Great, great phrase there. So. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> God. All right. My last song for the list is actually the last song on the first album 10. We have to go back to 10 <laughs> one more time. Uh, it's the last song, which I don't believe was ever put on the radio or released uh, uh, as a single, which is interesting because the song is called Release. I am myself like you somehow I'll ride the wave where it takes me I'll hold the pain It's not a rocker, uh, so uh, for a while I didn't pay much attention to the song. I don't think it was on like the, the original mixed uh, tapes that you sent me. No, probably um, not. Eventually, though, I started listening to it once I got the album, and I would just kind of do like deep dives and really paying attention to everything, reading the lyrics based on like the song sheet books that I got. <laughs> right. um, and the slow kind of rhythmic music sort of cradled me and lulled me into the sense of comfort. And I just remember I would listen to this song in the dark. Like, I I would listen to the whole album, but when it got to this one, I would dim the lights down, and I think I probably had a lava lamp. Lava lamp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I knew you were going there. (laughs) And I I would turn that on, and I would just listen to this in the dark and just feel like I was standing, like, shoulder deep in the ocean Mm -hmm. as waves would just kind of push and pull and crest over me very slowly kind of building with this song until the end when it does kind of hit that like arena power riffs. Yeah. Um, and I have read that lyrically it's about, you know, channeling a lot of feelings about loss and death mm-hmm. that uh, Eddie was going through with his biological father. And at the same time, the, the other bandmates, um, Jeff and Stone, who were they were their loss for Andrew Wood, Andrew Wood yeah. from Mother Love Bone, which we kind of didn't talk about with the history of how the band was formed. Yeah, um, actually, 
from one of my soundtrack selections episode, I think Kyle Benning wrote out uh, one of the comments on the website and mentioned kind of like the it. history of the band. He, went and he did a deep dive into it. It was really, it was really impactful. It was a really good, um, really good notes by that guy. Yeah, yeah, because I had kind of I, I flubbed the, the timeline of the history, even though I used yeah. to know it perfectly. But I, I kind of flubbed when when Mother Love Bone like ended and when uh, a Temple of a Dog kind of came out. Right. Um, but yeah, so with Andrew Woods passing and everything. And so I, I just kind of got the sense that this was kind of like channeling a little bit of grief and then release as the song title yeah. kind of alludes to sure. it and just kind of that, that feeling of being spent and just kind of giving it all back into yeah. the ether through the music or through the lyrics. Um, and just like the way his when, – when Eddie's just sort of like chanting just the oohs and ahs and everything to the end of it, mm-hmm. I just thought there was something about that melodically that, that really struck me. So not a song that you would like normally stick out as like, as like a hit, but it was one that I just kind of vibed to that I always really liked. Yeah, I'm glad you put this on your list because this song um... – this song definitely, and maybe it's because it's the last song of, on, on an album, it, can, it gets overlooked. It's easily overlooked, and it's uh, a, a very simple, slow build kind of song. I think it's funny that you mentioned that it makes you feel like you're in the ocean, because this is one of the many that Eddie probably wrote surfing. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll bet you he probably did. But this song, I remember my first my first connection to the song was simply like it just it's for a long time it's just an open d chord like finger picking d chord with a pull off a finger pull off kind of that and that and and i just used to play that over and over for a while and then figure out the chord the bass chords underneath it and stuff so it was just a song that i could just sit around and play um and then seeing it live like i i don't remember when in the set they played it at Lollapalooza, but all of a sudden this becomes something wholly different when performed live with the crowd singing back to the point where you can't even hear Eddie because the crowd is so loud and so into it. And there's a giant wave of people moving with the music and the power of it takes on something wholly different. This has kind of become my dark horse for a greatest song on the album. And it's, it's very strange that I, I, it's, it was completely overlooked when I first got the album it was like, eh, that's, that's okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, this is one of those that when you, when you're in the environment of them playing it live and Eddie doesn't have to sing a single word and you'll hear the crowd is just that loud. It's just that powerful. It's that good. Um, yeah, it's this, this great song choice, amazing song. All right, so how do you follow that? What is the capper for this episode? <laughs> well, you follow that with probably one of the greatest pre-internet discovery songs you could probably end up finding, which is Yellow Leadbetter. I'm not afraid. 
talk a lot about this song. <laughs> there are so many things to mention in this song, most of which people probably know, a few things people probably don't know. Um, I'll start out this conversation with the fact that this is an amazing song. <laughs> like, this song was great. I discovered this in 92, 93 era. Uh, on K-Rock, and it was one of those weird rarities where K-Rock was playing an unreleased song by the band I loved. And I'm like, "How? what the hell? How are they doing that? Where is it? But this was before the internet. You couldn't Google things. You couldn't track stuff down. You couldn't, you know, there were no streaming services for music yet. So it was, you know, they just kept saying it was... It was an unreleased Pearl Jam track, and that's about all they did. Um, luckily, I t- was able to track it down through those bootleg stores that I found the imports and stuff and found versions of it. I found a live version of it and then a studio version of it eventually. Um, and I loved it because it's a simple kind of blues EAB, easy blues uh, guitar track, very reminiscent of Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing for people that want to dig deep back into the the chords and the, the strumming pattern of McCready and that. Um, now... The cool thing about the song is, and I'm sure this is the one part of the story that everybody knows, you can almost never understand what he's saying. He mumbles <laughs> his way through the song. Eddie Vedder mumbles through it. And I remember in my search for trying to find out what he's saying, I stumbled upon multiple different live bootlegs of it. And it proved no help at all because every time he sang something different. <laughs> so I'm like going, how am I going to learn the words to this if he's mumbling different things every single time he sings the song? So this was like, it it became a quest and it was just the weirdest thing. Now, eventually to come full circle and what what he did end up speaking about it recently. And for the most part, the story is about a boy whose brother goes to war in the Gulf War and dies. And the army sends him back a yellow letter saying that your brother's dead and the kid's trying to process it. So he goes for a walk in his neighborhood uh, trying to you know, deal with the death of his brother. Now, this kid that's walking is like a grungy, long haired, stringy guitar rock, flannel shirt, uh, guitar T-shirt, looks like a, a alternative rocket. Now he's walking around and he sees uh, his neighbors down the street are an old couple on the porch with an American flag. And so he waves to them as a sign of like, you know, he's a patriot. And the couple just looks at him and sees this grungy, dirty, burnout kid and they don't wave back. And the kid's feeling is, I'm waving to you as a patriot. You have the American flag. My my brother just gave his life for this country and died. And you don't know that all you see is what you want to see. And that was what Eddie wrote the song about then. So now, once you know the story, uh, you know, I've kind of tracked down various versions of him singing it over the years and everything. And and he does kind of improv his way through most of the song. He changes lyrics here and there almost all the time. And he adds things and, and does breakdowns and then kind of goes off on the story a little bit. But the gist is always pretty much the same. Um, and I think it's just kind of it's it's a powerful song. It's awesome. It's a great song. And the fact that it was such a quest to try and find the lyrics to it which i you know it makes me wonder if in the recording of it like i don't did he mumble it because he didn't want the story out or did he mumble it because maybe he was just making up lyrics on the spot and they used that recording or something those are things that i don't know you might know the answer to that but this is this is probably one of the coolest songs that ever became a hit without being a single without being on an album and without knowing what the hell any of the lyrics are (laughs) 
<laughs> my first note that I wrote down was, did we ever figure out the lyrics to this song? Because I, I remember, don't think we did. <laughs> I remember us sitting down listening again and again, like taking a verse at a time, a line at a time, like a phrase, and just like, what was that word? And, and yeah, I, I have heard that I, I'd heard like a lot of like the story that you described. I kind of heard that eventually. Um, I've also heard that the music to the song came first, like that Mike was playing around like with the, the melody and like re- yeah. recording a lot of this and Eddie picked up on it and maybe po- possibly just sort of like improv or had lived a lot of like the vocals on the, on the spot and maybe just kind of mumbled the way through the things that he didn't really have a good handle on. He's like, eh, we can write the lyrics later. Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. never did. And had to, um, but yeah, I've heard the same thing that he, he changes the lyrics based on different live performances. Um, well, that, that's, it's funny that you mentioned that part uh, about the mumbling because he, cause I know as a songwriter, there's a lot of times when I'm record, when I'm, when I'm trying to get a melody down and I have like, I'm, I maybe want to record a demo of something, but I don't know what the words are. I just want to remember the melody I had in my head. I'll just kind of mumble my way through it. So, that, you know, so uh, that's what I've done. Now, it, this just seems like he just decided, yeah, that's good. <laughs> good enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, gosh, I, I love the song. This was one of my first, if not my first experience of really getting the idea of B-sides and yep. outtakes and deep cuts and just like, why would you have a song like this that you didn't make <laughs> like commercially available? Like, why, why wouldn't you put this out for as many people to hear it as possible? Why Absolutely. would you record songs that you didn't put on the album? Like, what's the <laughs> point? Yeah, um, yeah, because that was kind of foreign to me. I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean? This was written for that album and not on it. I'm like, I didn't know you could do that. It's like, why not? It's better than most of the yes. songs on that yeah. album. Like, who yeah, decides yeah. that? Yeah, I think the way you the way you described the way you felt about like having like a state of love and trust, the way you felt about that, like you're in the club now kind of thing. This yeah. was this was kind of the way I felt too. Like yeah. once I got a hold of this and I was able to put this on a mixtape, a Pearl Jam mixtape, and I had ownership of this song that wasn't released, I felt like something special. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and because I never really understood the lyrics or could follow the narrative of the story like at the sign, like I just let the vocals, the sort of mumbling, become another musical instrument. Um, yeah. I, I've talked about that on other shows that we've done. Like when, I, if I listen to a foreign language song, the the melody, the, the harmony of the the language of the of the vocals just becomes sure. another yeah. instrument. And yeah, that's sort of what this was for me. So because of that, for a long time, I did almost think of this almost as an instrumental song. At least that's the way it affected me. That's the way it hit me. Yeah. Um, so I really I focused because of that much more on the guitars and and McCready's sound and you really hear the Jimi Hendrix comparison and the influence in this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember we one of the last big Pearl Jam projects we got we found I think at Record Rev Record Revolution the store there was like a three or four disc bootleg concert from a Chicago performance that they did. And this song might have been the closer, like the last song that did, and it was a yeah. long extended version. And I think we looked up, we read that Mike McCready checked into the hospital yes, after the concert I for remember. exhaustion. And yeah. we're like, this yeah. song almost yeah. killed him. This song <laughs> hospitalized him. <laughs> That's how good it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I do remember that. And it was like, it, again, three discs. It was like a three-hour set closing yeah. with the song. And it, yeah, I think it did almost kill him. Uh, it's, it's it's pretty amazing but yeah this was this is this this song will always kind of be uh, i mean i had to kind of i had to kind of close out my list with this song because it's like that penultimate kind of 
this was a, the best song I heard from them at a time when nobody else could get it and I had to track it down. And then it was a mystery. I felt like the Scooby-Doo gang trying to track down, like, what the hell is he talking about? And why does he say something different every time? So I felt like there's a secret here that he doesn't want out and just all this stuff. And then on top of that, like you said, even if you can't understand what he's saying, you can hum along with a, just an amazing amazing blues ballad yeah and for all those reasons the song is it's just classic it's classic pearl jam yeah yeah as we've gone through our set list you know i'm i kind of knew it but i just realized it's dawning on me that for people listening to this who might have had certain expectations we didn't talk (laughs) about jeremy which was one of their biggest hits because of the mtv the music video connection we didn't talk about the trilogy of songs alive once and footsteps Footsteps. which the whole song kind of like tells this whole story uh, about you know (laughs) leading up to like this sort of murder suicide this whole event um we didn't talk about even flow another one not for (laughs) you which he played after kurt cobain's death right Um, we we left a lot (laughs) <laughs> on the table, so I definitely think there's material for us to come back uh, for um, for a second volume of this. Even like just when I'm thinking about their live performances, I think that that concert, that, that Chicago concert that we talked about, uh, actually no, it it became a staple. They did it in a lot of their live shows for a long time. Pearl Jam was doing. Baba O'Reilly, the Who song, yeah. Teenage Witch. Oh my god! And they yeah. were they were doing that before. Like I think that song really came back like in the late '90s because it was in American Beauty. It was on the soundtrack mm. for that, and that kind of it became a re- resurgence and it became popular again, uh, like in the early 2000s around that time. But like for years before that, yeah. Pearl Jam was doing Baba O'Reilly at all of their live shows. An amazing live version. Yep. So, yeah. yeah, well, they're huge Who Who fans. Yeah, yeah, so it, hear, yeah. yeah. But it was really, really that was that was really cool. And for just again, since we're talking about you know for preconceived expectations from your listeners and everything, I don't want people to think that all we care about is the first two, three Pearl Jam albums. <laughs> so I want to point out just an honorable mention, really quick, to make let people know that we did in fact listen to other Pearl Jam albums. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a shout out to Save You from Riot Act. That was one of my favorites. If you haven't heard that, or if you're not familiar with it go check it out i love the riff i love the lyrics to it it's it's kind of loosely maybe ambiguously about lane staley's death um Mm -hmm. and how none of his friends could save him from ended up killing himself from drugs and stuff um the only reason it doesn't make my list is for the simple fact that despite the fact that I love the riff and I love the lyrics, I don't know that they blend well together. Mm -hmm. Um I feel like maybe those lyrics could have been in a, a different song um, that's just my personal opinion, but I'm just giving that a shout out. Yeah, and I mean they've got a new album coming out at the end of March, so I'm I'm actually excited to hear it. I'm, I'm looking forward to approaching. Yeah, up very much time. so. Very much so. We've so. heard two songs off the album now, um, and the one that you referenced earlier, which is really cool, kind of a hint of electronica and where they can go with it. And then their second single was just released, Super Blood Wolf Moon, which is uh, they took the title from a short story that I wrote a couple <laughs> years ago <laughs> about the Super Blood Wolf Moon and the venom on the moon and how we have to go to the moon and get the wolves for to solve humanity's problems so um yeah so you know i'll get into that another time (laughs) after the pending lawsuit is settled (laughs) right exactly yeah there's only so much i can say about it right now pending litigation (laughs) right Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as on Facebook and Twitter. Fire and Water Records can also be found on Spotify. 
Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. If you like this show but don't wish to support us through Patreon, please go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for Fire & Water Records. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Oh, I'm wrong, oh, man. Turn my world to blame.